Hello, greetings. So glad that you've joined us. My name's Ethan. I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. And we're very glad that you have an interest in spiritual matters. We explore the gospel message and look into the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We can see that as the text reached their conclusion, everything seemed to be coming together. The prophets had foretold that the Messiah of God would come, that Jesus of Nazareth was born at the right time to the right woman in the right circumstances. And he did all the things that the Messiah should have done, fulfilled the law, he taught the people, he healed the sick, he raised the dead, and he spoke of his kingdom. In Luke chapter 19, verses 29 through 40, he had entered Jerusalem in triumph. The crowds had hailed him the king, the son of David. He had purged the temple. He confounded the religious authorities. And surely now he would take his rightful throne and begin overthrowing the Romans. At least that was the expectation of many in Israel. But as we come to the conclusion of the Gospels, we see that Jesus is instead betrayed, condemned, and executed as a common criminal at the Passover feast in the year 30 or 33 of our era. In Matthew 26 and 27, Mark 14 and 15, Luke 21 and 22, and John 18 and 19. How is this possible? And furthermore, why would Jesus know that he was going to be killed, and in fact insist, as he did so many times, in Luke 9, 21, 22, 43 through 45, and Matthew 26, 39, that this was in fact God's plan all along, that he would die on that cross. Why don't we explore, as we can from Scripture, this death of Jesus, how and why Jesus died. Let us return to that fateful night of the Passover in either year 30 or 33. According to Matthew 26, 17-35, Mark 14, 12-31, Luke chapter 22, verses 7-38, and John chapter 13-17. According to those passages, Jesus ate the Passover with his disciples. During the Passover meal, he instituted the Lord's Supper. He took bread and the fruit of the vine, and he blessed it and gave it, and said, this is my body, this is my blood, which is given for you. He spoke with them, in fact, at great length in the Gospel of John, and, and he washed their feet. He, they head out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And it seems that there is where Jesus begins to suffer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew 26, verse 37, uh, as he's praying there in the Garden. His soul is sorrowful to death, and he makes petition to the Father, that if all possible, to avoid the upcoming suffering, let this cup pass from me. But not my will be done, he said, your will be done. In Luke 22, and verse 44, Luke mentions that his prayer, his, he, he sweated as though sweating blood. Uh, some believe that this was hematidrosis, which is a condition where a person begins to sweat blood because of great stress. Uh, but it's important to note that Luke does not actually say that Jesus sweated blood, but that the sweat drops were like drops of blood, that they were of great size and intensity. And yet it definitely shows us that Jesus was experiencing great anguish of soul in anticipation of the things that he was about to endure. After all, he is God the Son in the flesh. He would know exactly what was going to happen and that would be all the more agonizing. He is comforted by an angel at that moment and given strength in Luke 22 and verse 43. And soon after, Judas Iscariot comes with the guards. Jesus is betrayed. Peter strikes Malchus, the servant of the high priest, and he cuts off his ear. But Jesus rebukes him and tells him to put the sword back because those who live by the sword will die by the sword. 
He heals that servant, and he's taken away, and his disciples flee. Again, he's continuing in moral anguish. He's now in captivity. He is led about, and he's alone. He is presented before Annas and Caiaphas, and he meets with the Jews. There's fault with witnesses that come forth. Their testimony does not agree against him. Jesus is asked if he is the Christ, and he confesses that he is the Son of God. The high priest charges him with blasphemy. There's a lot of mental and emotional suffering going on here. The false testimony, the hardness of hearts of the Jews, the fact that he could not get them to understand the truth. And he was spat upon, he was stricken on the face and body, he was slapped on the face. <coughs> At this point in the narrative, we hear in many of the Gospels, Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and John 18, the denials of Peter. That Peter is nearby and denies that he's ever known Jesus. And so here's Jesus' closest disciple closest friend at this point, and he has abandoned him. So Jesus would have felt the full anguish of being alone at that moment. In the morning, we're told in Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 22, that the decision was made to put him to death, and he was handed over to Pilate, the governor of the Rome, the procurator of Judea, of the Romans. And Jesus stood before Peter, excuse me, before Pilate. Uh, a lot of charges were made against him, a lot of things were said against him, but he has not answered them. And when he hears that Jesus was from Galilee, uh, and Pilate, uh, Herod is in town, he hands him over to Herod. Herod had wanted to see him, see some great sign done by him, but Jesus did not answer him, all the questions and all the mockery that was he experienced, and so Herod sent him back to, to, to Pilate, and they had been an enmity, and now they are now friends after that, Luke says. Pilate does not want to have him killed, most likely because he just does not want to follow along what the religious authorities want to do. And so he, he says there's this Passover custom where I hand over somebody to you. And he asks if they want Jesus to be handed over. Instead, the crowd asks for Barabbas, an insurrectionist, a robber, a murderer, to be given to them. And they demand that Jesus should be crucified. So Jesus, again, experiences mockery, contempt from Herod and the soldiers. He sees a crowd which had hailed him as a Messiah not a week earlier now, telling that they wanted him crucified. And they did not understand what they had just done, that they had asked for a murder to be given to them, and they were killing the author of life. As Peter would make clear in Acts 3, 15 and 17. Pilate then has Jesus scourged. And he gets into the will of the people, washes his hands symbolically of the blood of Jesus, and hands him over to be crucified Scourging was not usually done before a crucifixion. Scourging was the standard Roman punishment to dissuade people from further disobedience, and most were released afterward. If you got imprisoned by the Romans, you should expect a beating, and that was normally a scourging. Pilate was trying to just punish Jesus, not have him killed. A scourging was really a flogging. There was a short leather whip called a flagrum or flagellum, and it would have lead balls at its end. Jewish custom, as we can see in 2 Corinthians 11.24, was 39 lashes, one fewer than 40. The Romans had no such compunction. And the whip would have struck Jesus' shoulders, back, and legs. Uh, the first would just cut open the skin, and they'd be going down in a very methodical pattern, down the back on each side, and then again, uh, they would repeat it. Um, as they would continued, these cuts would go deeper into the skin layers, and blood would come forth, and the the blood balls would first bruise, but the bruise would open in later blows. The skin would eventually hang off the body like ribbons. 
leaving the body a bloody and torn mess. And when the centurion sees that the prisoner is near death, that is when the Romans would finish the scourging. And so Jesus, by this point, is quite physically and uh, emotionally drained, likely near death just from that, uh, suffering all kinds of abuse. In Matthew, Mark, and John, uh, at this point, there is further humiliation Jesus experiences at the hand of the soldiers. They mock him, they strip his clothes, and they put a robe on him. They twist a crown of thorns, and they press it upon his head. They put a reed in his hand and provide mock worship. They spit upon him, strike him with a reed, take off the robe, and put his clothes back on. All of this would have been all the more agonizing beyond the emotional anguish because of the physical pain involved, because of the scourging uh, and uh, exposed uh, raw wounds on the back. To take off and put on clothing uh, twice would have been great agony. Furthermore, the crown of thorns upon the head, and the head is full of all kinds of blood vessels that... Uh, once pierced, bleed profusely. And so there had been profuse blood from all of those points of laceration where the thorns uh, were impressed upon uh, his head. In John's Gospel, the final decision is then made by Pilate to crucify Jesus in John 19, 4-16 at this point. <coughs> Matthew, Mark, and Luke at this point and say that Simon of Cyrene carries Jesus' cross. John says Jesus carries his own cross. This is not a contradiction, but likely a bit of both. Jesus might have begun carrying his cross. And it wasn't carrying the whole cross. He was probably just carrying uh, what's called the patibulum, the uh, crossbar, uh, at this point. Uh, at some point, he probably could no longer carry the cross, and Simon of Cyrene uh, was compelled to carry it the rest of the way for him. That patibulum, uh, that bar, would have been about 110 pounds. Uh, Jesus would have been in very good physical shape uh, because of all of the walking and the carpentry work he would have done, but even so, with all that he had experienced, that would have been quite the load uh, to carry, especially if there was any incline at all. Uh, in Luke 23, the crowds lament, and Jesus tells them to mourn for themselves and the upcoming disaster more than for him. Uh, Jesus was given wine mixed with gall or myrrh, and he tasted it but didn't drink it, and that was partly bitter and was disgusting. Uh, some people suggest it might have held dead in pain, but uh, we'd have to ask why the soldiers who were trying to torture him anyway would do that. It's just really disgusting. And so it's kind of another form of torture. And then in Matthew 27, 32 through 50, Mark 15, 24, 30, 37, Luke 23, 32 through 46, and John 19, 17 through 30, we have the account of the crucifixion. Crucifixion, as a practice, seemed to, to originate with the Persians, and it was brought into the Near Eastern and classical worlds from them. It was reserved for criminals for whom rich Rome wanted to make an example. Uh, if you're just trying to execute somebody, uh, you can stab them very quickly, and uh, that'll take care of that particular situation. It's very easy, and then you can use clean off the knife and use it again. Uh, you crucify because you're trying to send a message. It's very humiliating. It's very agonizing. Uh, this is probably not a Latin cross that is popular in Western Christendom. The Latin cross, of course, is the standard cross you see where the crossbar is very much below the top of the support bar. Instead, it's probably a Greek cross, which is more of a tau cross or a T cross. And so, therefore, uh, it would be better imagined that uh, the patibulum, uh, the crossbar, was on top of the support bar. 
And it's one of the most painful ways to die that man has ever imagined. In fact, we have a word uh, in English to talk about pain. Extreme pain, we normally use excruciating pain. It's from the Latin excrucare, that is, from the cross. So it's the kind of uh, suffering that you get from the cross. Uh, normally, death happened because of asphyxiation, exposure, or perhaps hunger or dehydration. The idea of what happens in crucifixion is that the nails and the wrists and the ankles allow for enough movement to continue to breathe that makes it extremely painful. If you lift up in order to inhale, you are able to relieve pressure on your arms, but instead all of your weight is now borne upon your ankles, and therefore the the, the exposed and severed nerve there it sends out pain signals, and so you're in agony. Excuse me, the opposite. The, uh, your arms are taking the weight when you're inhaling, and so your your wrists are failing that, and then when you're exhaling, excuse me, and you're released, then all of the weight goes back to your ankles. So at, at every single breath, you are having agony and, and, and pain and suffering um, from either your arms or from your legs. Many would run out of strength uh, and could no longer pull themselves up to breathe, and therefore they would asphyxiate. And that's especially if the legs are broken. When the legs are broken, you couldn't uh, use them as to support to lift. And so you can't lift up your, your your chest enough to breathe. And so you just can't get oxygen in and you die. And in John 18, 31, 32, that's why they are breaking the legs of the people crucified around you so that they would die quicker. Uh, stronger victims, on the other hand, uh, and those who were not being crucified on a high holy day, would have died of other causes, uh, such as running out of food. Uh, dying of starvation, perhaps dying of thirst, dying of exposure to the elements, perhaps. Uh, so Jesus was crucified. Uh, and again, the text, with scourging and crucifixion, they don't describe it. I, we've gone in more gross detail, because we are unfamiliar with it in 21st century society. And the Gospel authors did not have to explain what scourging and crucifixion were. Their audience knew very well what those things were. And it's a very understated way of talking about it. To not have to go through in detail exactly what it's about. Uh, there would be one nail in each wrist. And both ankles would have been nailed through with one nail. Like in John 20, 25. A lot of people have gotten the impression that Jesus was nailed in the cross by uh, the palms. But uh, the palms cannot bear the weight of the human body. Uh, if you try to do that, it basically the nails drip out through one of the fingers. Uh, the, in Greek, the word for hand also includes the wrist. And that is why uh, the, the term can be used. And so it's the wrist, not the middle of the palms, where the nail holes would have been. Again, it would be an unbelievable amount of pain. The two criminals that he was uh, crucified between were likely Barabbas' associates. And after all, Jesus is on the cross that Barabbas was supposed to occupy. Uh, initially, they torment him, but one comes to repentance. Meanwhile, uh, his clothes were divided between soldiers. Lot was cast for the seamless tunic. Mary, his mother, and Mary Magdalene, John, watch his death. Jesus, while on the cross, says seven things. He asks for the Father to forgive his executioners. He tells the thief that he will be with him in paradise. He commissions John to take care for Mary. He cries out, Eli, la lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22.1. He says he thirsts, he commends his spirit to God, and he declares that it is finished. He is mocked by those who pass by. He also suffers emotional pain, seeing those who love him and his love, and you know, he loves, watching him die. 
he when he thirsts, he given sour wine. And sour wine is basically almost vinegar. And it's the last thing that he tastes. Uh, he endures about six hours on the cross. And there's darkness from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. How did Jesus die? Um, there's We can't know for certain the exact cause of death. But some physicians have have done some speculation based upon the evidence in the Gospels. Uh, one such is Dr. C. Truman Davis um, that uh, seemed as plausible as any other story, which would be heart failure. After all, Jesus had already suffered a lot before he was crucified, uh, that a lot of his tissue would have lost fluid and the heart would be compressed. Uh, the pericardium, the sac around the heart, would have filled with serum. Um, the dehydration that he would experience at that point would, cry, would, would lead him to cry out for thirst, as he did in John 19.28. The heart would be overly constricted and stressed. It would fill the fluid and it would fall, fail. And uh, there's evidence of that after he died. In John 19.34-37, when he is pierced with the spear, uh, blood and water come out together. And that is consistent with uh, everything we just described, with that kind of heart failure. And it would also explain how he would have died in a six-hour period as opposed to the much longer period of time that it would normally take for somebody uh, to die under those circumstances. After he's dead, his body is taken down by Joseph of Arimathea. It's prepared and buried at the end of Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 19. The body is, body is wrapped in cloths and is prepared with a lot of myrrh aloes, many pounds of myrrh aloes. And then it's sealed in a rock-cut tomb. So we hear all these terrible things. We have to wonder why. Why did it have to happen? Wasn't he not the Word of God incarnate? John 1, verse 1, verse 14. Is it not, as the Hebrew author said and Peter said, that he committed no sin and deceit was not found in his mouth in Hebrews 4, 15 and 1 Peter 1, 22? 1 Peter 2, he's God, and he didn't do anything wrong, how could he have possibly been killed? Well, there's a couple hints given in the Gospels themselves. The first one is in John one twenty nine, when G John the Baptist sees Jesus and cries out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In Matthew 20 and verse 28, where Jesus says that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In John one twenty nine, Jesus being called the Lamb, it's a very interesting way of looking at the situation. To understand the image of the Lamb, we need to understand animal sacrifice and the law. In Exodus chapter 12 and Leviticus chapter 5, we can see use of lambs uh, for sacrifices in atonement or as burnt offerings on the altar. Uh, the sacrifice of the Lamb was a, was a major part of the Passover. That the, the Lamb was sacrificed and His blood was the reason that God passed over the Israelites and they were to continue to do this over time. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, Paul makes that association explicit, saying, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So when we see that Jesus is a lamb, we're supposed to understand it in terms of the Passover lamb. But why would one sacrifice a lamb for sin? Well, Leviticus 17, 11, and we can see Hebrews 9, verse 22, the life of an animal is in his blood. The life is in the blood. And so atonement can only be accomplished by giving the life for another life. And that's what that's the explicit logic of the atonement system with sacrifices in Leviticus 17.11. The life is in the blood, so I've given it to you to give on the altar for your, to atone for your souls. The animal is reckoned as sinless. 
And so the animal takes on the sin of the poor of the of the one who offers a sacrifice, and allows the one who is offering the sacrifice to be cleansed and of the sin. The lamb thus must die, so the sinner can be cleansed and live. That's how Jesus is the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. But that leads us to the question: Why does Jesus have to be the Lamb of God? What is the sin of the world that has to be taken away? And this gets us to the fact that all have sinned. The animal the Israelites were supposed to offer those animal sacrifices because they had sinned against God and had to be forgiven and atoned for that sin. The sin problem goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned, and that day they died a spiritual death, and they had no recourse that they could do for themselves in Genesis 3 and Romans chapter 5. And ever since, people have committed sin at various times in their lives. Romans 3, leading up to verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And sin, of course, is a problem because sin separates man and God in Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. It's an affront to God's majesty and justice. He has turned away from those who do evil in Habakkuk 1, 13, Psalm 34, 16, and 1 Peter 3, 12. That those who commit sin obtain the penalty of death, condemnation, eternal torment. In Romans 3, 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. And First Thessalonians 1, 6 through 9, that uh, eternal condemnation away from the power of God's might is for those who do not obey God who do not, do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So sin leads to our spiritual ruin and condemnation. But what can we do about it? Well, we want to do things about it. We like to fix problems. So this is a problem we can't fix. Because even if we did all the good we could possibly do, it doesn't matter. It doesn't erase or outweigh the evil. This is not based on fairness or equality. When we have transgressed the law, we are counted as transgressors. It does not matter if we have transgressed in one point or a thousand points. We are guilty. We have transgressed. And there's no deed we can do that can atone for it. <coughs> Romans 3.20 and James chapter 2. What about animal sacrifices? When they atone? Well, God did command them. The Hebrew author, though, says in Hebrews 10 verse 4, the blood of bulls and goats could not really take away sin. We can't stand before God and expect to be justified by themselves or cleansed by the blood of animals inherently. Uh, the animal couldn't sin anyway. That's, but it's clean blood, but it, 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 what's that all about? Uh, in that situation, God would be just to condemn everybody for their sins, and man would have no recourse. But thanks be to God that while he is a God of justice, he is also a God of love and mercy. It's Deuteronomy 32.4, Isaiah 30, verse 8, 1 John 4.9, and Nehemiah 9.17-31 that God has sent his son Jesus to be the lamb who would take away the sin of the world, to give his life as a ransom for many. We can see so much of this throughout the New Testament. John 3.16, Ephesians 2, Titus 3. That Jesus' blood could atone because he was perfect and sinless, like a lamb. Isaiah 53, it was spoken of him that he would be that way. Second Corinthians 5 and verse 21, he's become our sin offering. And Hebrews 9.11-15 explains it in further detail. Uh, but he's not a... He's, he's, a conscious and willing sacrifice. He's not a, an animal that couldn't sin. He was tempted at all points as we are, yet without sin in Hebrews 4, verse 15. And Jesus was able to do his sacrifice once for all. The Hebrew author emphasizes this in Hebrews 9, 24 through 26. We don't need to continually offer sacrifices because Jesus' one perfect sacrifice was sufficient. In Romans 5, 12 through, 8, 12 through 21, that's also Paul's point that as sin entered the world through the act of one man, Adam, through the righteous deed of Jesus, that one righteous deed can become atonement for all of that sin. And so sin is to be entirely put away. That We are to reckon ourselves as dead to sin and alive to righteousness in Romans chapter 6. 
And in fact, as Paul uh, of Tarsus emphasizes in himself, that uh, Christ came to save sinners of him whom he is the foremost, that everyone can be covered in their sins. Everybody can have forgiveness from Jesus if they are willing to trust in him and repent. In 1 Timothy 1, 12-16. Jesus' death establishes a new covenant in his blood in Hebrews 9, 15-23. And he is the mediator of that covenant. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5. That allowed for the old covenant, Hebrews 7 and 8, to be done away with. And very important message in Ephesians 2, 11 through 18, when he died on the cross, Jesus killed the hostility between people. There's always reasons that people divide from each other. Always reasons people can find to be separate from each other. But in Jesus, God kills all the hostility. He kills the hostilities, particularly between the Jew and the Gentile. That uh, Jews were to be find salvation in Jesus, Romans 7, 1 through 4. But the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10 and verse 15, chapters 10 and 15, were brought in because God, Jesus, made them one man. Because he took, he set aside the law that divided them. And in fact, anybody can be in Jesus. And what Christians share in Jesus is able to overcome all the things that the world might try to use to divide them. So we can see Galatians 3:28, Colossians 3:11. In fact, salvation of all men. In Jesus Christ is God's eternal plan, manifest in his church, in Ephesians 3.10-11. So yes, Jesus of Nazareth died in perhaps the cruelest, most painful way that man has ever invented. He experienced intense physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual pain and suffering through the betrayal, abuse, scourging, and crucifixion. He suffered these things so that all of us could be redeemed from our sin. He became sin on our behalf, that we could be forgiven. Make it be that the death of Christ be of value to us. May it ever be to no effect. May we all put our trust in the Lord Jesus and receive forgiveness of our sins through his death so that we live with him forevermore. Again, we're so glad that you've joined us. Perhaps you'd like to talk more about these things. Maybe you've, this is one of the first times you've heard about Jesus' death and what it means for you, or maybe you've got some questions about how it happened or why it had to happen. Maybe you need to become a follower of Jesus. Is there any way I can be of assistance? Please let me know. Please contact me through my website, deverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. Perhaps you just want to know more about the Ventures to Christ. Maybe you want to come check us out. Uh, we Please find out more about us on our, online, our website, adventuretochrist.org. And we're also on social media. We again thank you. Have a great day.